is program 22 of Van Ferdinand Legal News here on Waterberg Stereo. My name is Volker Kruger. I'm from Van Ferdinand Attorneys. Our email address is info at vvd.co.za if you would like to send us your questions or comments. Today I've got two guests lined up again, Nicola Lemaita. We will talk about enforcing maintenance orders during the COVID-19 lockdown periods. What can you do if, uh, for example, your ex-spouse fails to pay the maintenance in terms of a maintenance court order? Can you attach his salary? Can you attach his assets? Can you go to jail? Then we will also be talking to Emily Richter about a controversial case in Britain First date, KISS ends in 2.8 million claim over code SOAR is the heading of one of the articles dealing with the case. And the question there is, can the claimant indeed claim compensation for damages suffered as a result of contracting the relevant virus after the KISS at the first date? And I'm going to ask Emery to make a prediction what our courts here in South Africa would find on similar uh, facts. So yeah, please uh, stay tuned for both these discussions. I think they will be informative and interesting. Nicola Lemaita is with us again. We are uh, discussing an article that appeared in uh, Netwerk 24. Ex moet hoes, maar hy kan Ex spouse uh, must pay but he cannot. All uh, issues surrounding the enforcing of maintenance orders during the COVID-19 lockdown periods is the topic on the table. And um, yeah, Nicola, I guess we can probably accept that the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the payment of maintenance between ex-spouses or, or periods, uh, parents. I mean, there are obviously a lot of people that uh, experience financial distress in these times? Um, it definitely has. And as as we all know, um, the pandemic and the regulations has affected the jobs and income of many South Africans. And this naturally then affects the payment of certain expenses, which also includes maintenance. Um, so this article reports on a maintenance matter which came about during this pandemic. Um, a woman started the proceedings against her ex-husband um, who failed to pay maintenance. Um, so he, like many others, was forced to suspend his business operations due to the pandemic and regulations, um, and she wanted him to be sent um, to jail for this. The court, however, found that it won't serve any purpose to send him to jail, um, and he cannot even, or they cannot even expect him to pay a fine, um, because he simply cannot afford to pay the fine or his maintenance obligations. Um, so I don't know if the listeners will recall, but I previously spoke about the DNA principle um, regarding maintenance, um, which is then the duty of the parents to pay maintenance, the need of the child for maintenance, and the ability of a parent to actually pay the maintenance. Um, so if the party doesn't have the ability to pay maintenance, he or she cannot be expected to contribute towards the child's maintenance needs. Um, and simply put, um, you can't bloot at the clip top Okay, but what recourse uh, do these ex-spouses or parents uh, then have, or uh, are they left without any? 
Well, um, the fact remains that maintenance is an expense that needs to be paid before anything else. Um, so if a party simply cannot afford to pay in accordance with the maintenance order, which probably was made during different circumstances and before this pandemic, um, the debt will continue to accrue. Um, so you can claim the arrear maintenance when the other party receives an income again, um, or you can even claim those pay payments um, from the party's pension fund if he or she does have one. Um, there's also the option of getting an order to attach a part of the um, party's salary for these payments. Um, alternatively, you can also attach assets, um, we, which can be sold to ensure that the child's maintenance needs are still being met. Um, my advice would then be if you are the party you can no longer afford to pay maintenance because this debt is then continuing to accrue, um, open the lines of communication with the other party to who you are meant to pay the maintenance. Um, this will enable him or, him or her to start budgeting um, or to adjust the budget and make the necessary arrangements. Um, but obviously, in practice, we know that communication doesn't always flow so easily between parties to a dispute like this. Um, and if you are not able to work something out bet between the two of you, um, approach the maintenance court as soon as possible to amend the order to make provision for your current circumstances and to make sure that that debt that then doesn't continue to, to accrue. Okay, uh, attaching a part of the um, other party's salary, what does that mean? Uh, does the employer then pay the maintenance amount on a monthly basis to the dependent persons? So you don't have to bother claiming it from, from, from the, the debtor as such? Exactly. It kind of avoids that whole communication. Um, it's deducted directly from his salary. It will reflect on his or her um, pay slip um, and it's done by the employer. So there's basically no way um, to kind of get around it. it. It's an expense that will be paid before anything else. Okay. And pension fund, uh, so that also applies where the pension fund has not yet paid out, or is that more in relation to any monthly payments that are already paid to, to uh, the person responsible for the maintenance payments? Yeah, that can apply then to the pension fund, which is still intact. Um, so it's kind of um, um, exception that is created by the law to ensure that um, because there are usually um, a large amount of funds available in the pension fund but um, sometimes you cannot afford to pay the maintenance from your salary so that enables you to kind of get into that pension fund monies um, to make sure that the maintenance can still be paid although it's then from that alternative source um, it doesn't mean that the entire pension fund will pay out just the maintenance um, part thereof. Okay, yeah, I think that's uh, good to know and good advice. Uh, so yeah, remember that you can attach uh, the pension fund and you can attach the salary of the person responsible for the maintenance payments uh, and thereby make sure that you indeed uh, get the funds that you need to be uh, maintained or uh, to maintain uh, the relevant children. Thank you, Nicola. We're talking to Emily Richter and Martin Besoudnoot from Van Velden Duffy, both of them regarding a court case that is currently pending in Britain. There's an article um, that we saw on uh, IOL on the website. The heading there is first date kiss ends in 2.8 million claim over code saw. And then the uh, article reports on uh, what this court case is about. Apparently at the first um, date, 
which uh, was uh, going well and even led to a kiss on the lips, uh, this uh, Martin Conway um, and um, his uh, date, uh, uh, Jovanna Lovelace, uh, met. And then a uh, couple of days after the, uh, the date, um, the Martin Conway, Conway said that he felt ill and he found that he had code sore. Um, and he's now suing her for uh, 130,000 pounds. That's about 2.8 million rand. Accusing her of negligence and passing um, on the infection to him. Um, the infection being the herpes simplex virus. Uh, it was only after the um, kiss uh, when um, her makeup uh, started coming off, he says, that uh, it was revealed that she had a cold sore. She, so she was actually hiding it with the, with the makeup, he says. Um, he's a personal trainer. Um, and um, yeah, he says that uh, the virus uh, will remain in his skin for life. He has been left traumatized, he says. He alleges that uh, it has blighted his personal and professional um, life. Um, his claim is uh, before the Central London County Court. And there, and I quote, he said, I was kissed before I was informed of any cold sore. Um, he uh, accuses her of failing in her moral, ethical, and legal duty by not telling him about the cold sore before they kissed. She was, um, she, uh, on the other hand, uh, dismiss, uh, uh, asked for the dismissal of the claim, saying that it's frivolous and vexatious. Um, so, yeah, um, the question that we want to discuss today is uh, what would a South African court find when these are the facts in front of such a court? And um, yeah, we previously discussed a sort of related topic with Elmery, um, namely the Inyalangu case, which I think maybe might give us some guideline in respect of that question. In other words, in respect of the question, what a South African court would find if these are the facts. So um, yeah, um, Elmery, um, Perhaps you can just briefly explain to the listeners again what were the facts of that Dinyalangu um, case. And uh, yeah, I think last time we, we said it might be relevant for the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, you know any transmission of the virus, uh, of the COVID-19 virus. So, so yeah, uh, just tell us again, again what happened there. Um, okay, Volker. Well, in the Nyalanga case, um, the court specifically dealt with the transmission of viruses. And um, in this case, Mr. Nyalangu was charged with rape and attempted murder after he had non-consensual intercourse with a complainant whilst being HIV positive. And um, this matter occurred in a time when HIV treatment was really not accessible to South Africans and a lot of people died because of HIV. And therefore, um, after he, he raped the complainant, he was also charged with attempted murder because he knowingly and intentionally transmitted this um, fatal virus. And the court in, in the Nyalangu case then dealt with the transmission of viruses and made quite a precedent with regards to the transmission of viruses in our law. Okay, so he was uh, found uh, guilty, no? 
Yes, he was found guilty, especially because he knowingly and intentionally transmitted the virus. And during his um, his testimony in court, it, it was very clear that he was aware of the seriousness of HIV and he knew that the outcome of having HIV would be um, death. So he actually knowingly transmitted the virus and he knew that the complainant might die if she gets infected with HIV. Okay. And I think last time we said that in respect of the COVID-19 virus, a similar conclusion would perhaps be made by a court if you are charged with transmitting the virus. So if you, for example, know that you are infected and you carelessly you know, make contact with other persons and you transmit the disease, you might also be uh, charged criminally yeah, for, for infecting that person. And then the next question, I guess, is also a potential civil claim. So maybe we should just emphasize the difference between a criminal case and, and a civil uh, case. Now, the Nyulango case was, of course, a, a criminal case. Yes. Um, whilst, uh, um, you know, a civil uh, case might also be relevant uh, by whoever suffered damages because of the transmission of, of, of for example, the COVID-19 um, virus. Now, um, am correct. I right in saying that was our conclusion last time we discussed this matter? Yes, you are correct. We concluded that um, the Nyalangu case definitely um, created a precedent for our courts and that we there was already examples of people being prosecuted for the spreading of COVID-19 and they, are, they were also charged with attempted murder um, because they knowingly and intentionally spread, spread it, um, COVID-19 um, which can cause the death of the people um, being infected. And I okay. definitely agree with you, um, there might be a civil claim as well. Okay, and now the big uh, question is, um, you know, this code saw case in, in Britain, to what extent um, could we apply the Ingolangu case and, you know, what we have now concluded on the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the transmission of a virus in that respect to those facts, in other words, what would a court in South Africa, if those facts had to be decided on, find? So, um, yeah, um, I don't know. What do you think, uh, Amri? And then I'm going to ask Martin also to give his uh, opinion. Martin, actually, um, we're putting on, on, on the spot. He didn't have the opportunity to, to prepare at all for this discussion. Um, but, uh, I mean, he's our expert, uh, delictual uh, law, um, medical uh, negligence uh, claims, um, third-party claims based on motor vehicle accidents, etc. So uh, I'm sure he can make some good contributions without being prepared. But yeah, um, Amadi, let's start with you. What do you think? Um, if uh, if these facts were in front of a South African court, uh, what would the court find? Well, firstly, um, I'm not a medical practitioner, but according to my knowledge, the herpes simplex virus, which is basically the cold sores and sometimes genital warts, are not really a fatal virus such as HIV and um, COVID-19. So in respect of criminal charges, I'm of the opinion that the court will not charge or prosecute a spreader of um, herpes simplex because death is not the outcome of this virus. Although cold sores um, do cause a lot of discomfort, but you hardly hear of anyone dying from herpes simplex. So I'm of the opinion that the court will not prosecute a spreader for attempted murder. 
but I am of the opinion that a civil claim will succeed in South African in the South African court. I'm not sure whether a claim for 2.8 million rand will succeed. I think um, that it will be difficult to prove the quantum of the damages that was actually suffered because it's only cold sores and not one of the more serious types of herpes. But I am of the opinion that a civil claim will succeed. Of course, um, I'm, I also think that the Martin, the person who, um, who kissed the girl on the first date, he was he voluntarily entered into the risk when he kissed her without knowing her background. So this will also definitely be something that the court will consider when determining the claim and the negligence. I didn't realize they got the same names. Uh, this is now Martin Conway, no? <laughs> who yes. had the kiss. <laughs> yes. And uh, we're talking to Martin Mercedenote. Please note all listeners. Martin Mercedenote is not the guy that uh, gave the kiss. But anyway, uh, uh, Martin, uh, what do you think? Would you agree with, with Amory? Uh, Volker, yes. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, complainant or claimant or plaintiff in the court action will have to prove on a balance of probabilities that um, uh, the girl who had the herpes uh, virus knew about that, about the virus, that she had contracted it, uh, that she concealed that fact, that he was totally innocent, that he did not know about that. And I think one of the defenses that uh, the defendant or the, the girl can raise is, as Elmer has alluded to, uh, voluntary voluntary uh, assumption of risk, what we call in Latin volenti non fit injuria. In other words, that he that he assumed that risk when he uh, kissed her. Uh, that is a defense that she can raise. Yeah. Uh, as far as uh, contributory negligence on his part is concerned. Sorry, um, maybe, uh, Martin, sorry if I can interrupt you. It's like, like someone participating in a boxing uh, um, contest no? or a rugby game. Exactly. If, if exactly. you do that, That's... you sort of assume the risk. So mm. obviously uh, then uh, there's always the danger that you can get injured and then you, um, then you um, can't claim damages later if that does happen. So um, what, what an argument could be is that if you kiss someone on the first date without knowing the person, you're sort of uh, accepting that risk no? of, of, mm -hmm. of indeed, uh, 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 you know, contracting some sort of disease or, or virus being transmitted. But anyway, the, the second point was the contributory neg negligence. No? What, what do you think about that one, Martin? Yeah, it's a difficult one. Uh, contributory negligence, uh, the best way to illustrate that is uh, in a motor vehicle accident uh, where the one driver claims from the other driver for damages uh, to his vehicle. Uh, he will have to prove on a balance of probabilities that the other driver caused the accident and was 100% negligence or negligent. He doesn't have to prove 100%, he just has to prove that he was casual negligent. Uh, the other driver can raise as a defense then contributory negligence and say, yes, he admits that he was uh, negligent, but the other driver that instituted the claim against him was also a negligent contributory to the accident. And uh, the court will then make a finding as to the apportionment of damages. So it might well be uh, applied to this case as well. Okay, so maybe just explain to the listeners, let's say there is a motor vehicle accident and the court finds 
you sort of um, um, equally to blame, 50-50, or well, let's make it 60-40. Let's say the court comes to the conclusion that, um, okay, the defendant was 60% at fault, but the, the claimant was 40% at fault. So um, can the claimant then only claim 60% of his damages? Is that right? That's right, Fokker. He will receive 60% of whatever damages he can prove, uh, be that medical uh, expenses or future medical expenses, uh, general damages, pain and suffering, loss of amenities of life, even loss of income, if he can prove that. And the other 40%? So he will only receive... Sorry? Sorry, I'll carry on. He will then only receive 60% uh, of those damages. And the other 40% he would have to carry himself, no? Because... Uh, That's correct. Then have found that he was to blame for, for that. So so yeah. Um, I think Martin, am I right in saying that there are actually very few cases where uh, the court says one party is 100% to blame in the case of of motor vehicle accidents. Now there's often uh, the finding of contributory negligence on the side of of the plaintiff. Uh, Volker, you're right. Uh, it's it's. More often than not, there is an apportionment uh, when it comes to two drivers uh, being involved in a motor vehicle accident, but it is possible that the other driver could have been 100% negligent. I'm just thinking of a, a, a motor vehicle accident that occurs in a, a robot-controlled intersection. Uh, there, the driver who has absolute right of way because the, the, the robot is green for him uh, may proceed. And as he as after he had entered the intersection, the other driver then uh, ignores uh, the red robot and uh, collides with his vehicle. Uh, there, the court uh, might find that uh, the other driver was 100% negligent, and there will be no apportionment then. Yeah, yeah. Except if, for example, the defendant can prove that the plaintiff was driving too fast, no? then uh, there might be some contributory negligence. But yeah, yeah, I understand might also then be 100%. So yeah, it's interesting. So applying those principles to the fact that we have in front of us with this British court case about the code saw and so on, um, yeah, the court can, in other words, then also potentially find that um, uh, the guy was, uh, yeah, contributory uh, negligent, no? and that he, during the first date, uh, kissed her without knowing her and knowing her background and knowing whether she's healthy or not. No? So um, yeah, would be... Really interesting to see what the court in uh, in Britain would, uh, would would or will find in this case. We'll certainly keep an eye on it. And um, yeah, what we've uh, heard today is uh, sort of our take um, on um, on the question. Obviously, uh, our listeners will probably gather from our discussion that the law is often not that uh, clear cut. Uh, there are often a lot of arguments that can be raised on both sides. And then obviously, at the end of the day, a court will have to make a a judgment and, and and to a final finding. All right. Um, thank you, uh, Emory. Thank you, Martin. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between three o'clock and four o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.